Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Jenny Kaplan, co-founder and CEO of Wonder Media Network, and this is a special episode of Women Belong in the House. Today, I wanted to bring you a lightly edited version of my full interview with Representative Deb Holland from New Mexico's 1st District. Deb made history the moment she was elected as one of the first two Native American women ever elected to Congress. We discussed what it feels like to hold this historic title and how her lived experience informs her work on the Hill, experience that's especially relevant right now as Congress grapples with COVID-19. This was one of my favorite interviews this season. I hope you enjoy. I'm Deb Holland. I'm the Congresswoman for New Mexico's first congressional district. I feel like right now, especially, we're all going through highs and lows. Is there a story that you can think of off the top of your head that represents a real low point since you've been in Congress? And then we'll start low and then go to a real high point since you've been in office? Sure. So I I would say that uh, right now is the lowest point. We haven't you know, convened as, uh, as a body for quite some time. I haven't had constituents come into my office. We haven't had any hearings lately uh, because of the COVID-19 virus. So we, it's not business as usual in, on Capitol Hill right now. And I, you know, I worry every day that, um, we're not as effective as we could be if we were all there in person. Normally, we'd be having hearings. We'd be, you know, we'd bring witnesses in. We'd be able to question them about issues. And now everything is through Zoom and telephone conference call. And so we want to keep the ball rolling. And it's hard to know if we're really keeping it rolling as best we can. On the flip side, what's a high point been? So I've been in Congress now a year and, you know, four months, almost four months. And the fact that, you know, my my slogan for my campaign was Congress has never heard a voice like mine. I get to Congress. I'm one of the first two Native American women ever elected to Congress. Uh, You know, something sticks with me. I was rushing out to a meeting one afternoon in my office in D.C. and There was a tribal chairman who came by my office, a very tall man with a big, thick braid behind him. Uh, I had a suit on, and he just happened to come by. Uh, He found my office and wanted to come in and just see my office, right? Say he was in my office, and he signed my register. I just happened to be leaving out the door, so I was able to see him in the front office before I left to go to my meeting. And I introduced myself. He gave me a hug and he just cried on my shoulder, you know, for several minutes. It means so much to people, to Native folks still, to know that someone is there who understands 
Indian country or can identify with them or they can identify with me, right? I mean, that still, to me, is, is important and uh, it makes me happy that, that I can be that person for them. I'd love to talk more about that. So when you were elected, you made history. What does that mean to you? And how does that affect what you want to do in office? I think that as a representative, we all represent different constituencies, right? I represent District 1 in New Mexico. It has Albuquerque, one of the largest cities. I have farmers. I have um, Hispanic farmers in the South Valley. I have Spanish land grants to the uh, east of Albuquerque. I have three Indian tribes in my district. I have a lot of different people. And, you know, we all go to Congress to represent whoever our constituents are. However, I find myself also representing all of Indian country, right? There are tribal leaders from all over the country who stop in to see me uh, because perhaps they feel comfortable in my office. When they come in and they see, you know, my Pueblo Indian pottery or they see, you know, a, a stick of sage sitting there or they they can identify with things that um, that they're familiar with. They, I mean, it, it helps when they come in and they don't have to start by explaining to me what tribal sovereignty is. I know what it is. I know what the trust responsibility means. And so I give them the floor and they can just launch into their issues. And it's, it's almost like it's saving a lot of time <laughs> too, right? You know, I'm proud, of course, to to have that opportunity and to have that knowledge and experience that I can impart, not only on, uh, you know, folks who come to visit me in my office, but also on my colleagues, maybe, who who don't have Indian tribes in their own districts. It speaks to the fact that even though this is the most diverse Congress in history, there's still a lot of room for improvement in terms of making Congress look more like the people it represents. I wonder if you could speak to that. Is that something that you see in the House? Where are sort of areas for improvement, or how do you think about how the body could be more representative or look more like the people it represents? Well, of course, we could use more women. Our country is 50% women or 51% or whatever it is. There's only, there's a little over 23% women in, in Congress. So we need more women to be more representative. We, some of my colleagues and I, we joked after we had won uh, because sometimes you'll hear that, you know, there's more millionaires per, you know, whatever in the Congress, right? There's a lot of millionaires in Congress. Well, a lot of us didn't even have savings accounts when we ran for Congress and we got into Congress. And so we sometimes we joke about, oh, we just lowered the, you know, the yearly <laughs> salaries or whatever, the, the net worth of, you know, uh, Congress because we came from working class backgrounds or, you know, we were single moms or we, you know, it's, it's, I feel like in that respect too, that we, we represent more. I think there needs to be more everyday people who know what it's like to struggle, right? 
you know, when, I, when I'm in a hearing and we're discussing SNAP benefits and me having been on SNAP with my daughter and uh, knowing what that was like to, uh, you know, when I first applied to be denied emergency SNAP benefits and, uh, you know, cry in the, in the worker's office because I knew that I couldn't go to the grocery store as soon as I left that office. It's, um, I know what that's like for people. So we need more folks who know what it's like for more people. But I will say also that there are so many uh, who I have essentially deemed my mentors, a lot of folks, uh, people in Congress right now, who were, you know, who were me, you know, 10 years ago or 15 years ago. And, um, and so uh, I'm, I'm grateful to have uh, mentors there who also have the experience to get things done, uh, because that's also important. I'm wondering, being a voice in Congress, finally, that the Native community never had, that you also have experience, like you said, in being from a working class background. Is there pressure in knowing that you are one of the first two Native women? Like, do you feel a a responsibility to represent your community in like the correct way? Or is there more pressure given that there are only two of you? I mean, I think there is pressure. I mean, look, when National Congress of American Indians has their yearly uh, conference in D.C., you know, I have I I pretty much like move everything out of my office and just put a bunch of chairs in there. Uh, And we have meetings like every 15 minutes because that's when everyone, you know, tribes are in town and we're, we just want to make sure that we can meet with as many people as possible. So it does, it presents challenges like that, right? Like there's not enough hours in the day to meet with everyone. But as far as, you know, like representing this constituency who hasn't always had representation, we're raising issues that have needed to be raised uh, for decades, right? Um, and this, this period of time with the um, coronavirus, uh, when we think about, you know, there's Indian tribes here in New Mexico, uh, Indian communities who don't have running water. And we're telling people to wash their hands all the time, right? If you're having to haul water in your truck from, you know, 20 miles away and bring it to your home, you know, how do you make things like that happen? So there's a lot of issues that we've needed to remedy for a very long time and that this virus has sort of exposed to the world. And so I hope that um, we can remedy some of those issues now. The fact that you and Representative Davids were elected at the same time, you sort of both broke that historic barrier. How do you think that's affected your or influenced your beginnings in Congress to have someone else navigating that moment with you? You know, from the time I was a young child, I've so I've a lot of times in my life, I've been the only native in the room kind of a thing. And so I felt immediately felt like, as soon as Sharice Davids and I were were sworn in together, you know, I it was like, this is great. I'm not the only Native in the room, right? So now there's four of us. By, by electing two women, we sort of balanced out the Native representation in Congress. There's two men, two women, two Democrats, two Republicans. So 
Nice little group. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This episode is brought to you by Madison Reed. Have you been thinking about a hair transformation but felt like that was impossible to do at home? I certainly have. But I generally think that requires going to a salon. Coloring my hair at home always seemed like an impossibility. How could I ensure quality and ease? Enter Madison Reed. Madison Reed delivers salon quality hair color to your door, starting at just $22. They make it really easy, and the ingredients in the products are actually good for your hair. If, like me, you're not sure exactly what color to go with, check out their color quiz to help you figure out the right color and tone for you. I took the color quiz, ordered my product, and I can't wait to see how it turns out. My order is in the mail. Get yours with 10% off. Go to madison-reed.com and use my promo code WBITH and you'll get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit. Again, my promo code is WBITH. Go to madison-reed.com now to find your perfect shade. That's madison-reed.com. When you get to Congress, how do you think about prioritizing all of the things you wanted to get done? It's not just like you get there and you can get stuff done immediately. There's a lot of strategy. So how did you think about that? I want to remind everyone (laughs) that we got sworn in during a government shutdown. And so the first 11 bills that we put up were all about opening the government, right? And so we had to open the government first. And I remember us having sort of a, a hearing of sorts with some Native folks so we could kind of get from them what they were experiencing with the government shutdown. That was issue number, that was priority number one. And... um But I mean, I had been um, talking to my constituents long before I ever got sworn in, right? We sat down, we had roundtables during my campaign. Uh, We had, we had lots of feedback from people and, and, um, and not only that, but we paid close attention to uh, my predecessor, Michelle Lujan Grisham. Uh, We, we kept her case manager. So Uh, That meant that he was going to continue to work on all the cases that he had brought in uh, from her. So we tried to just keep things rolling. You know, we know there's I've lived in Albuquerque for a long time. This is my home. I I know what the issues are here. Right. We have a military base here. We have Sandia Labs. Uh, We have a lot of pristine areas. We've got, um, you know, natural resources that we want to watch out for. And so, um, you know, those all those issues were on the table. What's been the best way to make Congress friends <laughs> or form alliances? How do you figure out how to do that? Or what's been your best technique? I am very fortunate. I have really wonderful colleagues, I have to say. I'm very appreciative of them. They've included me in so much. Like, I'll give you an example. There's a tri-caucus. It's the Black Caucus, the Asian Caucus, and the Hispanic Caucus. And they get together for the Democrats, and they get together and talk about issues and and move things forward for their caucuses, right? They want to sort of be allies with one another. Well, they immediately included me in those meetings so that we can talk about Native issues as well, right? So to fold those into the issues that they're already experiencing, 
Um, so I appreciate that. They, they always, you know, they've, they've worked hard to make sure that we're included. I, I think that, um, you know, for me, it's, I always want to lift my colleagues up. I always want to, you know, I want to make as many friends as possible because I, I feel like we should all be working together. So, so I, I, of course, Sharice and I were, we're sisters. So that was sort of automatic. We help each other a lot with various things. We have some wonderful allies, Ruben Gallego, who is the chair, chair of the subcommittee on indigenous peoples. And then our chairman on natural resources, Raul Grijalva, uh, the natural resources committee. We, a lot of native issues go through that committee. So, so I, um, you know, I'm grateful for all the for all the help and support uh, that I have. Uh, and that includes, you know, my colleagues across the aisle too. Uh, during this COVID-19 crisis, we're working hard on uh, the last legislative package that we moved through. Uh, we were working hard to make sure tribes had some money, had some funding for their emer healthcare emergency issues. And um, so I called colleagues my Republican colleagues and said, please, you know, help me. And they stepped up to help. So I'm grateful for that. It's interesting that you mentioned that. I'm, it seems like not only do you have to figure out how to find your place among all of the other members, but it's not only are there two parties, but even within the Democratic Party, there's so many different shades of blue. Is that something that you found to be a complicating factor or difficult to navigate or what's sort of your take on figuring out um, how to find the right allies for the right issues, given how, you know, diverse the perspectives are, even within the Democratic Party? I mean, there's a lot of mechanisms that will help them find you also, right? Like like there's a, a, a stream where you can put dear colleague letters on the web and all the staff can read those and you know, I mean, they're, they're, it works both ways. I can reach out and find folks, but we can also find, you know, they can find me and the issues I uh, am working on. We've uh, missing and murdered indigenous women, for example, have been, that's been a priority of mine and we've worked hard to move some bills forward. Uh, one of my colleagues was having a hearing on that topic. And so his staff called my office uh, please give us your top talking points so that we can manage some questions that would be effective for this hearing. So um, they'll find you. We see that, um, you know, various people have, um, because of their backgrounds, they have their own priorities, right? We have a number of, of women who were in the military, for example, and won their seats at the same time I did, women who were in the CIA and and, um, you know, worked at the Pentagon. And, and so you kind of know by people's backgrounds what their priorities are, and you just uh, reach out, but they reach out to you also. Uh, when, I, when I first got elected, actually before I got sworn in, um, the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights had put out their Broken Promises report, and uh, that highlighted five areas where the U.S. government essentially um, drastically underfunded and neglected Indian country. And, um, and so I wrote an op-ed on that 
um, on that report and I sent it to all my freshman colleagues and let them know I wanted you to read this and I want you to know that I'm going to be working on this. And um, I got a lot of responses back. That's great. You lead the way. We're behind you. We'll support you. So, um, you know, early on, I sort of let folks know that uh, I want to be, you know, I want to work on these ish on these native issues where tribes have been neglected. And so people know that and and um, they support me or they they come to me if they need some help with something. Wow. That's a lot of weight. To ca- I mean, that's you're representing such so many more people than are in your district. It's really amazing. You know, before Sharice and I got there, there are some amazing allies for Indian country in Congress already. So I'm really grateful for all of them. And uh, we'll just keep move, moving things forward. How do you think about, especially now in the current environment where none of the work is normal, how do you balance still doing your work in Congress, both your D.C. work and your district work, and also the fact that it's an election year, so you're also running to keep your seat? How do you think about balancing all of that? I think you just do it. <laughs> Try not to think about it because it's a lot, right? I mean, not, yes, you have all those things, and you got to keep things separate too, right? You can't mix your official with your campaign stuff, and so your staff is separate and everything's separate. And, uh, you know, you have separate emails. And so, yeah, it gets, to, you know, as, once you get down that sort of this, this goes into that pile, that goes into this pile, you, you know, it's kind of easy to keep those things separated. But, um, but yes, I mean, look, I, I am, I wanted to run for Congress because I, I felt like I could work extremely hard. And I felt like I knew what it was like for, you know, the vast majority of people in this district. I know I felt like I knew what their struggles are and, you know, what was important to them. And so I just I I just forge ahead. Right. And I I want to win my reelection because there's so much more work we have left to do. And so um so for me, it's, you know, you don't, I mean, it's not, you don't look at the hours. Oh my God, I, you know, I work for 14 hours today. You just do the work and when it's finished, it'll be finished. You've been in politics for a long time. So what's been the most surprising thing since being in Congress? The most surprising thing? Well, I mean, I mentioned just a few minutes ago about my Republican colleagues and you know, you, you see on the news every night that, you know, there's everyone's, you know, arguing and and um, we we seem on opposite sides of so much. Um, but we actually can agree on a lot of things also. So and that doesn't always make the news, right? That doesn't always make the headlines uh, that Democrats and Republicans came together uh, to agree on something, but it happens quite a bit. And, um, in fact, this last package that we passed where we had to, you know, there was one Republican who made us all travel to Washington, DC. However, 
Uh, that was a bipartisan bill, and we all, you know, we overwhelmingly agreed on it. So there's a lot of things that we overwhelmingly agree on. And, um, you know, sometimes I feel like um, folks don't realize that there's a lot of bipartisanship. And, and I was, frankly, a little surprised, too. That's great to hear. <laughs> One of the things I've heard a lot um, in these interviews is just, like, people don't realize how much does get done. Because the things that make the news are the things that are stuck or don't get done. But there's a lot that get, that actually happens <laughs> and that really gets passed. Absolutely. And so many of my colleagues care deeply about this country. Speaker Pelosi, the most amazing leader that I've I've ever had the experience to work with, she really does... Uh, put her heart and soul into, you know, doing whatever she can for this country. And, you know, you don't hear that often either, right? There's a lot of, there's so, there's a lot of people in Congress who really do um, work their hearts out. It's so amazing what you've been able to do, especially bringing the fact that you and Sharice are the first Native women in the House. And I am wondering just, it speaks to the fact that it is so important to have people from all different communities and backgrounds in the House to have those perspectives. And I wonder how you think this can be sort of a case for the fact that we need a more representative government or whether you think about that when you're trying to help better represent your community, uh, what it means sort of looking forward for how we can advance. I guess I could answer that with some of the legislation that that I have worked to pass, right, to introduce and to move forward, because we are truly working. Um, we, we want an economy that works for everyone. We want, there's too much disparity right now, right? So we, we want, you know, like I, I introduced with Elizabeth Warren, Senator Warren, a Universal Child Care and Early Learning Act that uh, will help working families across the country um, raise the wage act to help people to make more money so they can, um, you know, have a savings account or go on, you know, go on a vacation with their kids once in a while. Medicare for all, debt-free college. I introduced a bill called the Gig is Up, which makes uh, the gig companies uh, pay the Social Security and um, Medicare taxes uh, because the drive, you know, the drivers on on these um, gig companies. They weren't, you know, making like $8 an hour in a city like Washington, D.C. or New York City. So um, anti-lunch shaming bill, uh, the Violence Against Women Act, these are all bills that we uh, are moving forward. And yes, they, they're going to help my community, but they're going to help people all over the country. And so, um, you know, one of, one of my, I th like to think that one of my signature issues and one of the things I've fought for since I've been there also is our environment and, um, you know, working to make sure that that we protect our natural resources. So um, my Chaco Canyon bill uh, that passed the House and we're waiting for that to move in the Senate like we are a lot of things. You know, I'm truly honored to represent the people of New Mexico and and uh, it's 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 been it's been a wonderful experience regardless of you know 
where I am or what I'm doing. I just know that the people here deserve to have a voice. Thank you for listening to this special episode of Women Belong in the House. Make sure to subscribe for additional bonus episodes and the latest news about our upcoming third season. Women Belong in the House is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch and executive produced by me, Jenny Kaplan. Special thanks to Louisa Garbowit. Original theme music by Miles Moran. To stay up to date with what's going on at WMN, follow us on Instagram at WMN.media and Twitter at WMN Media. You can also reach me directly on Twitter at Jenny M. Kaplan. I'd love to hear from you. Talk to you soon.